This week on The Futurists, Stefan Lindström. You mentioned that data is the new oil. I, I've used now for a long time the argument that data is the new plutonium. Welcome back to another episode of The Futurists, where we track down and find and interview the people who are inventing the future. And this week, we've got a special guest for you. So welcome back, folks. I'm Rob Tursik, and this is my co-host, Brett King. Hello there. So, Brett, this week, we're going to interview uh, someone who is doing something that has inspired me so much. And I want to share this with you because, you know, for many months, you've been urging me to read that Kim Stanley Robinson book, The Ministry, oh, the of, Ministry the of the Future. Yeah, yeah. And I finally got around to reading it over the holidays, which, by the way, it's excellent. But thinking of that, I was like, why don't we have a ministry of the future? And as it turns out, while we don't have that in the United States, we do have a ministry of the future in Finland. And our guest Very today cool. is the ambassador to technology and digitalization from the foreign ministry of the government of Finland. So what, let's give a big welcome to Stefan Lindstrom. Stefan, welcome to the hey. show. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, Brett. Good to see you. Likewise, it's Thanks great to have you on. here on the show. We are excited to have you joining us all the way from Helsinki. Uh, and um, we want to know, what the heck is a ambassador to technology and digitalization? Tell me a bit about what you do. It, it's a little bit of a new thing. Of course, it's been brewing for a long time in a sense that technology, of course, affects everything uh, in the society so much right now. And also in the last five years, I would have said that everything has been accelerating. Uh, if you look at semiconductors or, or anything like that, standards, everything affects really. It, 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 it's not uh, any trade issues anymore. It's foreign and security policy issues. Hmm. And uh, uh, there are a few of us right now uh, in, in the different foreign services. And it's, it's very difficult also for the company sometimes to understand what what it's all about but uh, i think this uh, part of the of the trade is going to grow tremendously actually in the next coming years so we are really on the forefront on everything and like you said uh, uh, if i could choose it myself i would actually call myself ambassador of the future uh, <laughs> it would be really cool but uh, they turned it down so so uh, so far i, I have no, to stick with dude, we got to we got to like we got to put that out on craig no, no we got to put that out on like twitter or something and and get a movement to get you called the minister of the future that'd be pretty cool now tell me a little bit how that works because uh typically when you work in the foreign ministry of the foreign service your assignment is geographical you're assigned to a particular nation and you're built meant to build relationships within that nation but this is uh this is not something as national this is not place-based right your your mandate is is global you're responsible for technology and digital digitalization all over the world Yes, yes, I am, and and uh, we we do have uh, a kind of a progressive approach to this one. Uh, speaking Finland, that is, uh, I have colleagues, for instance, who are, are ambassadors for climate change. Uh, I, I have uh, colleagues who are, are ambassadors for for circular economy. Economy. Uh, we have one on hybrid issues, and we have one on cyber issues. Hmm. Uh, so we have a global mandate, and and uh, then work very closely together in in on, on these issues to to see how how can we create added value on, on on what we do. How can we actually create some some sort of uh, effectness in in the processes abroad and how do we communicate with with our counterparts in in my part of course it's mainly the companies the big global companies that i talk to on a, on a daily basis on different issues it, but is this does this inform policy is it more about 
you know, sort of PR, you know, from a from a Finnish perspective, you know, uh, that's what I'm really interested in, you know, because this is the problem we have in countries like the US and the UK and even Australia, where I'm from originally, is that, um, you know, the markets inform policy far too strongly, you know, and that's, you're always trying to get concessions from the market to make real significant changes. No, that's more like what we call public policy in a, in a way and country branding. This is this is the real stuff, and and uh, just a practical example of of uh, how difficult the, this is sometimes is is that uh, the the whole sort of tech ambassador concept was created really by Denmark uh, some six seven years ago. They appointed a tech ambassador to Silicon Valley, and and Kasper Klinge, uh, the, the the name of the guy, when he went to Facebook the first time uh, and asked for a meeting, uh, yeah. He got a really nice walkabout on on the the campus, and then he got a goodie bag, and then they sent him home. They had no idea what he was doing there, uh, and uh, uh, it took quite a long time for the companies to realize, in a sense, that we also deal, of course, with regulation. Uh, uh, what do the companies do? And and of course, when you look at it in, uh, more and more narrowly, I mean, the companies affect human rights. They they affect everything in the society today. So it's pretty natural that we have a, a, a sort of ongoing interaction with them. And just as another example, also talking about Facebook or Meta, uh, I think it was six years ago, Nick Clegg told me that they had something like uh, 10 people in governmental relations. Uh, mm-hmm. Now they are 400. So it just shows sort of, uh, in a sense, of awakening from their side as well, is that what they do actually has a totally different uh, effect on, on the society and, and on foreign, uh, foreign policy making. I think for the first 30 years of, uh, of Silicon Valley's rise, it was left to its own uh, devices. It w- they weren't really under the scrutiny of anyone. They had defense contracts yeah. with the U.S. government. Uh, so they were, you know, they were a military contractor. Um, but they and, and they dealt with universities and research labs, of course, but they weren't really governed. Um, and, you know, in the 1990s, our government, the U.S. government made a, a decision to, to leave it alone. You know, don't overregulate, don't regulate too prematurely. Uh, let it grow and see where it will go. And amazingly, that has persisted until maybe the past five years, where suddenly nations have kind of woken up and realized that these are globe-spanning information empires that exert phenomenal levels of control and have more insight into citizen behavior than the governments themselves. In some respect, they rival governments in their size and power. You know, the, and the budgets. Yeah, then the cap, the capitalization, uh, the market capitalization for the big tech companies is larger than the GDP of many countries. Uh, so, when you approach these companies, is that the approach you're taking? Are you approaching them as if they're a foreign power? Uh, not quite, but uh, it, it, it's kind of fun to to read uh, the history a little bit. I, I read Brad Smith's book uh, from from Microsoft uh, about the history, in a sense. And, and when he started with Microsoft 25 years ago, he said that it's really good that Microsoft sits in Seattle because it's so far away from all regulators. Uh, uh, 15 years later, he said that uh, it's really bad that we sit there because we should be sitting together with the regulators. And uh, Microsoft yeah. has a different approach than most of the other companies in a sense. They, they appoint what I would call diplomats already. Uh, there's a Microsoft presence in the EU and, 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 and so forth. So they see it from a different perspective uh, and, and they, they have a different kind of responsibility taking. But it, it's really something new that uh, that comes in there. And, and uh, it, it, it is when you talk about the market cap, I mean, the market cap of Apple is bigger than the whole stock market of Germany combined. And uh, that gives a tremendous amount of, of uh, 
leeway in a, in a sense and, and strength to them. But then you also have to look at it uh, from a different perspective. And that's what's happening in Europe uh, largely right now in a sense that uh, what, what uh, how, how do you regulate these companies? Uh, how do you regulate the activities in them? I mean, Section 230 is from 1996 in the US, right? And, and uh, uh, what is it? 27 words so, and, and it's giving total freedom to, to monetize and no right to the consumer whatsoever. I mean GDPR was the yeah. first uh, uh, kind of step in that direction and, and now with the with the new European legislation coming in to digital market and the digital uh, services act and the AI act and so forth uh, this is going to be a huge issue in the, in the next uh, coming years. Yeah. Let's take a second and talk we've about had, GDPR. We've had this conversation numerous times, haven't we, Robert? Yeah, yeah, it keeps coming up. Well, that's why we're having this show. Let's talk about GDPR because I think for the folks who are listening, perhaps some of them won't be familiar with that acronym. Uh, GDPR is a European Union regulation called the General Data Protection Regulation, GDPR for short. And what it means is uh, that companies do not have the permission to track, automatically track by default all the behavior uh, and target people with advertising. Um, this was recently in the news. The, the act has been around for five years, but it was recently in the news uh, last week because Meta, Facebook, got hit with a $400 million fine um, by the EU. Of course, Meta has appealed these fines in the past, but it looks like they won't weasel out of this. And one of the consequences of this $400 million fine is that Meta may be forbidden from tracking users at all with targeted advertising. If you know anything about Facebook's business model, that's exactly that how they business. make money. Yeah. Uh, so this would really cripple uh, Facebook in a pretty significant way. Uh, uh, Stefan, can you give us some perspective from Europe about that uh, about that case against Facebook? I don't know. I mean, the, the case is, is, is going on, of course, and, and uh, uh, they've been fined for a long time. I think it was a monthly fine and, and uh, they just refused to give in in, in, in any way. Uh, on GDPR in, in general, I, mean, I, I lived in the US for nine years and uh, participated in many panels and spoke at many venues. And it was kind of fun because many times you were attacked when you're sitting up there on the podium that uh, how dare you Europeans do something like this, that it has cost our industry $10 billion and, and uh, it's of no good and God knows what. Uh, the interesting part, though, is that uh, after the session after the, the seminar the same guy walks up to me and says that you know i had to say that because my company demanded it but personally i said thank good somebody is doing something uh and and uh, it's gone a little bit too far with the with the tracking business and and uh, everything what is there the, the metadata that is collected in 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 a sense and uh, at some points it's not really the gdpr as, as such that's going to put a stop on it it's more these new regulations that are coming in the dma and the dsa uh but uh the, the other thing is, of course, what has led to this is, is uh, the kind of tax avoidance by the companies. If you look at the market shares uh, of, of these companies in, in Europe on, on these issues, this is, of course, totally self-inflicted, so we shouldn't be complaining on, 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 on that in, uh, in, a, in a sense. But uh, on the web browser business, for instance, uh, Google Chrome has a 60% market share, and on, 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 on uh, the search, Google has a 95% market share in, in, in the whole thing. Still, they don't pay any virtually any taxes in Europe. Uh, and and uh, that's, of course, another uh, sort of approach to the whole issue. And, and uh, uh, is this fair or is it not? This is another thing that we are, we are talking about in, 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 uh, in, in many ways. 
uh, the, the figures are really interesting in this. And of course, then you also have to ask yourself is that why is this? Why have we come to this kind of a situation? And one of the reasons is, of course, that the, these big companies have bought up all the competition, uh, regardless mm-hmm. of where it is in Europe or in, in, in. So they've been given this dominant position. And, and I mean, in, even in the US, you have legislative proposals right now uh, mm-hmm. where you're looking at. Uh, uh, looking so uh, setting some kind of uh, limits on on how the companies can can uh, buy yeah. their their com- competition we'll so, get to the so, comparison with the us in just a moment but first i want to just circle back and make sure that the audience that's listening understands what you're saying you referred to two recent european union acts um the dma which is the digital markets act and the dsa and that is the digital services act uh, can you tell us a little bit about what those entail, uh, what they what they pertain to, and how they're going to regulate U.S. companies? Oh, it, it, it's uh, it's really they they are looking more at uh, uh, how how to say it in in it, it's it's far-reaching obligations on on gatekeepers really, uh, and and uh, uh, it's it's a signaling of a, of a kind of a new time new era of digital regulation uh, mm. and, and uh, it, it's not yet fully uh, in, in part but it, it depends a little bit on, on how do you define these companies I mean the, the it, it, it's very clearly defined on on what companies are going to be affected uh, by this and mm. and it's only the really big ones I think it was That's something right. like you have to have four, 45 million users per month and, and uh, or 400 million users in, in total I mean look uh, from this from this uh, from this side of the world it looks like it's an act that is designed to block Facebook and Google from uh, making ridiculous amounts of money on European citizens. Um, that might not be the intent, but it sure looks like that from California. I mean, uh, but there is a, I think the the one thing that we have I- in Europe, which, which, and I, you know, I think that the same, you know, could be true of other regions like China as well is the understanding of the strategic nature of data and the fact that it is an economic asset um, and you don't want that asset controlled by corporations outside of your geography. Now, that's a very difficult concept to deal with in respect to the way we actually are now seeing the evolution of these tech companies. Like you said, trans transnationals, um, Kim Stanley Robinson calls them, right? These uh, super corporations that are larger than many nations and they have massive influence in terms of policy. They have massive budgets um, and their ability to sort of get, you know, like in the States, they won that battle. They've won all of those battles in terms of regulation and policy and all of those things so that they can monetize that. But the rest of the world saying, well, hang on a second, yeah. maybe that's not the way it should work. And when we get into stuff like artificial intelligence, it's going to be even more critical. So this yeah. hands-off approach, all it's meaning now is that, um, you know, the U.S. is delegating policy decisions to Europe effectively. Uh, now you're in. Now you're firmly in Stefan's bailiwick. Stefan, you're the one who coined that term. Uh, as I recall, you said the U.S. has outsourced regulation to the EU. Tell me what you mean by that. Uh, the the U.S. has now. I mean, first of all, we have to go back to the 1996 and, and uh, Section 230 of, of, of the Act uh, that has been there for now way too long because it doesn't give any rights to to anyone the companies are free to monetize whatever date whatever activity they do this is the uh, digital and, and millennium no... copyright act the dmca and then you have the the other coin in in a sense of of uh, uh that uh, 
there are five legislative proposals in the U.S. right now that are, are uh, debated in in, uh, in the courts. And you have the Murder Filing Modernization Act. You have the Augmenting Compatibility and Competition by Enabling Service Switching Act. You have the American Choice and Innovation Online Act, uh, Ending Platform Monopolies Act, and Platform Competition and Opportunity Act. These have been discussed now for years and years and years, okay. and and uh, uh, lobbied into pieces so that there is no effectiveness in anything. And they are very, un- of course, from the the company's perspective, they are very unpopular from the the consumer perspective, at least the way they are being put forward. So what is the easy solution? Uh, let the Europeans do the dirty work. Uh, let them regulate and then you say that now we have to do this because the Europeans have done it. And we have to follow the European laws because they are extraterritorial. And if we want to keep that 400 million uh, consumer market, we have to follow those laws. Uh, so in a sense, I, I feel uh, that uh, it's an easy way for, for, the, for the Americans to to, to go behind the European activities. And this has happened already in GDPR in many, many ways. Uh, and, and I think uh, this is going it's to happen in FinTech too, Stefan. Uh, yeah. So, so it, we are looking for some kind of a universal norm. Uh, what would be easiest for the companies also? This incredibly complex. I mean, we are also facing an issue right now where we have, a, let's say, an American company that does something that is lawful uh, and it's demanded by the EU that they do in Europe. At the same time, they sell, they sell, the same activity is illegal in Japan. How do they comply? It's virtually impossible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, uh, the, these are issues that come up time and time again in, uh, for the companies, and they are really scratching their hair, wondering sort of that how, how can we get out of this? Uh, particularly also because many of these laws, because the nature of data, it's extraterritorial. So the yeah. law, if even if the company uh, acts in the US, they have to follow the law in Europe or in Japan or somewhere else uh, with the, with with these issues. So it, it, it is a network that uh, it, it's virtually impossible to comprehend. Do, do you think, uh, Stefan, that, that, you know, I, I absolutely agree with you. In fact, um, when it comes to things like climate action and how we deal with the immense costs, you know, economic and human lives that, that will come from this inevitably, and for things like artificial intelligence and how it's implemented, you know, across the financial networks, for example, it seems to me that some sort of form of global regulatory alliance is is inevitable in respect to creating these, you know, autonomous economies of the future that that cross boundaries with their technologies, with their algorithms, with their data. Do you see that that is sort of more of the way? Do you, do you envisage as a as a futurist, um, you know, that that's the way we'll have to go with regulation? It would be preferable, uh, but whether it's Possible is, is a different issue. Right. Yeah. The U.S. and uh, China the other, uh, will never yeah, settle for that. Yeah, yeah. No. The U.S. It would be like lighting a match. And but it's but it's necessary. Point. Otherwise, it creates this chaos that we've got. Right. Well, for sure. But look what, but what's it, happening it, effectively. What Stefan's saying is that it, the, this is also a value question many times. Uh, uh, and, and I love to talk about values. And and uh, here we are, we are sitting now, uh, three white guys. Uh, uh, 
plus minus 50 and, and uh, pondering these things. What we think uh, and what we value is totally different from the from the 25-year-olds uh, all around the world, not to mention the 18-year-olds. And, and uh, they have a different approach when they read, you know, Orwell's books or anything like this, uh, looking at these issues. And, and I think they are more actually willing to, to uh, accept uh, uh, regulation in a sense that uh, do not give all the rights to the companies instead to the individuals to the consumers i don't know do you, do you agree uh, well the problem is that we now have an economic system in the digital domain that economic system is well established it's been around for 20 years and companies have become very successful with it and they have something to lose there's something at stake and they're unwilling to give it up and they're unwilling to adapt under understandably right now there's something to fight for um which is why a company like facebook hires a former political advisor like um uh nick clegg to be the president of the company basically you know zuckerberg handed him the job and said go deal with the politicians and get them off our back and i think that was a brilliant move i think that was a brilliant hire uh, because you know it's like it's like if you want to um catch a thief you hire a thief if you want to deal with a politician, get a politician on the case. So I think the problem now has been this. Uh, the technology companies have run without much regulation and without much oversight and supervision. They've grown to immense scale. They operate in every planet on the world. They have deeper intelligence and better understanding of citizens than governments themselves. And while those companies will cooperate when requested, uh, they'll share data or share information with the governments where it's required. They operate otherwise with autonomy. And what we end up with is two things. Yeah, uh, you know, Brett made a comment about data. Uh, with respect to data, you know, we, we have a kind of data imperialism where a, con a company based in Beijing or, or in California can seize the data assets of citizens in other parts of the world and without any consent by the government. That's historically unprecedented. You know, we have this phrase that you and I have talked about in the past, Stefan, um, data is the new oil. Remember like 10 or 15 years ago, that's what every pundit was saying, data is the new oil. But data is not like oil. Oil is in the ground and it's, it's uh, you know, it's the property of a sovereign government and they will license rights to companies that want to extract it in exchange for hefty fees. If data is oil, well, where are the fees? Where is the licensing? Where is the permission? Where is the control from the government? It's non-existent. Refining, yeah. and so uh, well, the refining happens in California, right? And then what happens is they're using that data to train AIs, and what those AIs are now doing is a kind of AI colonialism, you know, where they reach out to uh, countries, uh, literally, you know, the artificial intelligence that's trained on national data is now limiting the choices that people see. It's it's determining in advance what those citizens or those populations get to see. This measure of loss of control is, I think, what's at stake here. This is what the governments are concerned about. I think they're right to be concerned about it. I'm not quite sure they're approaching it in the best way or the right way. Uh, you know, Stefan, not too long ago, you and I had a conversation with an EU minister who was trying to figure out how to regulate artificial intelligence. And uh, we had a lively debate at your place, um, you know, over dinner. And you'll remember, I got in a big debate with someone there about um, whether we should whether, whether we should regulate AI at all or whether it's even possible to regulate it. Well, that was a few years ago. What's the status of that today? What is the perspective in the EU about these enormous artificial intelligence empires that are being built outside of the EU? Yeah, I'm interested in this. 
Yeah, I, I think it's 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 a little bit too early to to even go into regulation. That I mean, because regulation is always reactive. You cannot be proactive in any way. Uh, another and interesting aspect there is that uh, I think we just scratched the surface of what AI is going to be. That's true. Uh, that's I mean, true. But by the it, time it, you regulate it, 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 that's the that's the problem, isn't it, Stefan? Is that by the exactly you know, you've got to put guardrails in place because AI has such broad. Uh, potential to impact society, um, employment. Yeah. I, I'll, I'll bring uh, a, I'll, you know, I'll bring another metaphor for you for you, Rob. The you, you mentioned that data is the new oil. Uh, I, I've used now for a long time uh, the argument that data is the new uh, uh, plutonium. <laughs> and, and why plutonium? Like uh, because if you if you have plutonium, uh, if you use it right, you know you have nuclear power. It's really good for the society. If you use it in a bad way, it's a, a nuclear weapon, or, or or it can pollute the planet for the next forty thousand years. Data is exactly the same thing. Uh, if you use it in the right way, it's really good for the society. It's really good for the individual. It's really good for the countries, for the companies, for everyone. If you use it in a bad way, you are in a situation like uh, Cambridge Analytica and trolling and, and uh, cybersecurity and, and uh, all, all these issues. So it's really more like plutonium than, than, than oil. I like it. Dangerous substance to handle. Handle it with care. Uh, not something to recklessly proceed with. And frankly, something that's not well understood by the general public, you know, so it has all those attributes. Um, I, I worry that we are torn. Um, and as you described a moment ago, you said that we are concerned about values and ethics for sure, right? And, and that's true, though those values may vary from country to country or culture to culture. But people are concerned about values and ethics. And unfortunately, for better or worse, government is where we we sort that out. That's how you know our, our process works. Uh, that's where we express our values and where we create a system for adjudicating values. I, I don't know if we've caught up with technology. And technology seems to be moving at such a rapid pace and evolving so fast and presenting so many complex, knotty issues uh, that are difficult to resolve even within a single culture, let alone multiple cultures around the world, it seems like an unsolvable problem. And of course, the companies do not care, right? That's not their problem to solve. Yeah. Uh, in this respect, it is like pollution. You know, the, the, uh, the, the issues around data are an externality. Companies are in the business of generating externalities and pushing them onto the public and letting the government clean up the mess. But I mean, th I think that, you know, I mean, again, we've had this conversation before, but I think that's really where we need a new intent behind corporations and the way they work for society. And I think that that is happening. It's not a regulatory movement, but it is a social movement where we're expecting more from these brands now. And I think- um, People what say gonna, that, Brett, but- But what they're gonna try and do ESG, is they're gonna try and PR and finesse their way out of yeah, that. Yeah, it's greenwashing. And then it will get real, right? Yeah. But then it has to get real. You know, I, I mean, I hope so, but- um, I don't know. I mean, we should get into this in the second half with Stefan in terms of, you know, how this, how we think about corporations in 30 or 40 years, you know, and mm -hmm. how uh, we think about the regulatory environment where regulations are highly automated. So we should definitely get into that. But do you want to do the quick fire round and we can? Uh, yeah, let's go to quick fire and then we'll take a break. All right, Stefan, I'm going to hit you with some uh, lightning round questions. Are you ready? Shoot. Okay. <laughs> What was the first science fiction you remember being exposed to? I think it was The Animal Farm. Very you interesting. Can count that as the, the, as a science fiction book. Yeah, definitely. 
Well, if you can call uh, 1984 science fiction, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. What, what technology, you're a technologist, what technology do you think has most changed humanity thus far? I'll say the internet. Uh, because David, it, has David Bowie created, it, it, it has created so much wealth. Uh, uh, it has uh, lifted so many people into the middle class in the world that, uh, yeah, I would say the internet. Great answer. Um, do you, ha do you Is there a particular futurist or entrepreneur that has uh, significantly influenced you in your career? Not on a sort of futurist side. In, in it, it is basically the network that uh, I've built during my, my my entire career, in a sense. Because uh, if there's something I, I really love, it's it's to spar with people. You know, bring people, intelligent people, around the table and, and just let it uh, let it go. Uh, no one really, in, in particular. One person I really admire is, is is Brad Smith of Microsoft. To be to be honest, I mean, the, uh, his thinking is is uh, very wide, and I, I I like the way he puts his values through. I agree with you. Uh, and the last question is: Is there a, a fable? or a science fiction story or something that you've read is representative of the future that you most hope for? The Jetsons. The Jetsons. <laughs> I mean, the, if, if, if you look at the visionary, uh, yeah. I, I don't know who, who and how they created all these visions when they, when they created the Jetsons, but it's really amazing to see something that was done in the 60s, how it sort of materializes today. Uh, yeah. So I, 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 I love that. Fantastic. Well, you're listening to The Futurists. I'm your host, Brett King. We're just speaking to Stefan Lindstrom. We're going to be right back after this break. We're going to dive into the future of regulation, government, policy setting, and all of those good things that we, we just got into. But stay tuned. We'll be right back. Provoke Media is proud to sponsor, produce, and support The Futurist podcast. Provoke.fm is a global podcast network and content creation company with the world's leading fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. And of course, it's spin-off podcasts, Breaking Banks Europe, Breaking Banks Asia Pacific, and the Fintech Five. But we also produce the official Finnovate podcast, Tech on Reg, Emerge Everywhere, the podcast of the Financial Health Network, and Next Gen Banker. For information about all our podcasts, go to Provoke.fm or check out Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show. Welcome back to The Futurists. I'm your host, Brett King, with my co-host, Rob Tersek. We're speaking to Stefan Lindstrom this week um, as the Minister of the Future, effectively, for, uh, uh, for Finland. But before we uh, come back to Stefan, Robert, what news from the future do you have for us this week? Brett, this week, news from the future is coming to us from uh, one of my favorite publications, which is um, Foreign Affairs. And this week, there's an article called The End of the Age of Sanctions, and I recommend people check it out. Um, you know, this uh, this entire incident that's been happening for the past year, this, this uh, conflict in the Ukraine, the Russian invasion, um, has raised uh, people's awareness of sanctions as an instrument of foreign policy. People have been quite aware of it. And I think people have had, um, you know, general citizens who are not that familiar with the process have had maybe high expectations that sanctions would cause Russia to change its policy or cause some kind of massive mayhem inside the Russian economy. 
quite manifestly, that's not the case. Uh, it certainly made a dent on the Russian economy, um, but it has made more than a dent. And it's going to cause the Russians to have to scramble to find alternatives for the things that have been um, that they're sanctioned about, you know, the economic transactions, payment systems and the ability to do imports. But it hasn't really brought their economy to its knees. It hasn't stopped them from prosecuting the war. Uh, they've continued. And so I think it started to raise a question about sanctions. The article in Foreign Affairs uh, from December 27 actually brings up several interesting issues, but it posits a future where sanctions are no longer as effective. And let me just briefly summarize sanctions for the folks that are listening. In the 1990s, the United States used economic sanctions against Libya. And at the time, we were trying to track down the terrorists that did the Lockerbie incident. You may recall that. But even then, Bill Clinton, uh, the president at the time in 1998, said that the United States was sanctions happy, that we were over-reliant on economic sanctions as an alternative to diplomatic pressure or an alternative to military intervention. It's sort of like the third option, and it's the easiest option for an American president to do because he doesn't require much support to do it. He can simply decree sanctions. Um, so the United States imposed unilateral sanctions in 1990s, and they were somewhat effective uh, with Libya. Um, then in 2012, the United States cut off Iran from the SWIFT banking system. And SWIFT is a global messaging system that enables all international payments. Uh, if, you're, if you're a bank, you're typically going to settle transactions through SWIFT. And that's a network of a dozen U.S. banks uh, that the transactions must go through. So that's a pretty effective instrument. We cut off uh, Iran in 2012. Then in 2014, when Russia invaded the Crimea in the Ukraine, sort of like the precursor to the current war, um, the United States and a number of other countries organized a set of sanctions on, on not just the Russian nation, but also certain individuals in the Russian, uh, certain leadership in the Russia. Um, in 2017, under President Trump, the United States got into a trade war with Beijing and imposed some unilateral economic sanctions there. And then, of course, in 2022, the United States, in concert with a number of nations, imposed a heavy round of sanctions on Russia. What a lot of people don't know is what the reaction has been. So this is a history now that spans 15 years, um, but all the way back to the 1990s, if you will, if you go back to Bill Clinton. A lot of countries are starting to organize a way to get around sanctions. And this is one of the reasons why the Russians have been so resilient. The ways to get around those sanction systems include currency swap agreements, where trade deals are settled with currency swaps. In other words, you can avoid the SWIFT banking system entirely. You're just going currency to currency. Um, and the Russians have been quite adept at doing this. Alternative payment systems. And alternative payment systems uh, would include things like um, the Chinese. Uh, the Chinese has set up an alternative. Uh, it's called the Shanghai Corporation Organization. Um, and that's, uh, that's enabling settlements in local currencies. Um, the Chinese have also created a currency swap system with more than 60 nations, including Argentina, Pakistan, Russia, South Africa, South Korea, Turkey, and the United Arab Emirates. Uh, they're currently conducting about $500 billion of trade uh, through that system. So it's not insignificant. This is nothing to rival the international banking system, but it is working. It is functioning. And what they're seeking to do is create sanctions-proof economic trade uh, systems and then finally, uh, the last technique is digital currencies. And of course, the leader here has been the Chinese government with the digital oh, renminbi. Yeah. Um, and they are trying to use their economic clout to force countries to settle payments in, uh, in digital renminbi. Of course, that would be a way for them to utterly bypass the American banking system entirely 
cut the Americans out. The Chinese make no secret of the fact that they would like to displace the United States from its role as a strongman in international payments. Um, that would greatly weaken the United States' ability to impose sanctions on nations. So uh, I recommend you check out the article. It's quite a long article, but it's full of fascinating facts and some information. It was a surprise to me to see how far advanced uh, this kind of cooperation is. And effectively, to me, the takeaway is this. Um, just as overuse of antibiotics has created antibiotic-resistant bugs, uh, basically we're creating superbugs because we over, we, we're over-reliant on antibiotics. So you know, the use of that tool creates an even more powerful problem. Uh, it seems that sanctions is working exactly the same way. What we're doing is we're training com countries that want to uh, defy the United States or defy the Western order. Uh, we're training those countries to find alternative paths uh, to conduct commerce, and to settle payments outside of the international banking system, we're effectively teaching them how to be sanctions proof. So that's it for the deep dive. Now let's go yeah. back to Stefan. You know, you, you you can just throw in artificial intelligence into the mix there or China's Belt and Road and, you know, you get all sorts of potential configurations. Yeah. Russia, well, respond, Ru Russia um, of course, because the sanctions included MasterCard and Visa, you couldn't use Russian um, credit cards or debit cards offshore. That's right. Um, and so what the Russian banks did is they signed up with Union Pay and they've now sent all their customers new cards on Union Pay. So, um, you know, that that business is not coming back to MasterCard and Visa. It's probably right. not coming back, you know, because right. so, yeah, pretty interesting. Well, and, and, you know, in, a couple of weeks ago, you and I had this discussion and it was a lively debate with Philip Alvelda. We we're talking about uh, U.S. the U.S. attempt to prevent China from getting advanced artificial intelligence chips, those, the semiconductors for AI. Um, and, and where I was sharing some information about the US, um, it's a unilateral trade policy, uh, you know, the trade restrictions or export restrictions on the, 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 the equipment to make semiconductors and the semiconductors themselves. Um, we're trying to prevent China from getting the next generation chips. Um, both you and Philip were unified in the idea that that's they're just going to find a way to work around that, either yeah. through shell companies or offshore deals or third-party countries, or they'll cut deals with uh, the Dutch company that manufactures that equipment and bypass the Americans. And of course, the Americans are trying very hard to create a coalition, as we always do. So we're trying desperately to talk to the Taiwanese companies and the Dutch companies that manufacture that equipment, uh, but they're under no particular compulsion to cooperate with us. So we have to convince them to do that. And at the same time, it's also spurring the Chinese to create their own independent semiconductor industry. Uh, so they'll double down on their it investment. It's harder and harder for the U.S. to enforce its view of, of world commerce and policy. Yeah, you I know. guess the question is who appointed the United States the policeman of the well, world? Yeah. You know? Well, that, that Stefan, I mean, you know, uh, China is doesn't have the same aspirations in terms of global policy potentially that the US does but maybe you know as an ambassadorial sort you know what's your view of this you know um the the US is losing credibility it, it I think it has lost credibility over the last few years particularly with its handling of the pandemic and other things but you know where where does this policy leadership come from in the future no that that's really the the I have a one-hour PowerPoint presentation on these issues, exactly these issues. That, uh, you don't have an hour to do a PowerPoint on this show. <laughs> yeah, no, no, but it's it's also the 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 leadership. I think it the I, I talk a lot about something called the splinternet, uh, that the world is divided into three different kind of tech spheres, uh, uh, and and it's all value based in in many ways. You have the uh, uh, European model. Uh, 
you, where, where the consumer is put in the in the middle. You have the American model where the uh, companies are put in the middle, and you have the Chinese model where the government owns all data. And uh, uh, it, it depends a little bit on, on how to do it. The question for us right now is really how do we sell our value base to the rest? to Africa, to Latin America, to Asia. Uh, it's technologically based in a sense that do you choose Huawei's technology that is heavily governmental subsidized or, or actually governmental owned. Uh, but we also know at the same time that all the data that is created, uh, uh, regardless if it's phone calls from the president or, 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 or a single individual, everything goes to China. Or do we go with the sort of uh, our model in a sense that uh, there, there are some rights for the individual, there are some values on, on the background of what we do and what we don't do. So this is really the big issue uh, in, 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 in the whole thing. Uh, I don't think the, the it's, it's also about the, what we call the great decoupling. Uh, so what we have done the last 20 years is that we have outsourced all sort of easy manufacturing to basically China. And, and uh, uh, it has created a, a big value uh, increase for our middle class uh, because we get all the consumption goods really, really cheap, consumer goods really cheap. Uh, without looking at sort of the, the big, well, the, the long-term effects of it. Uh, now, when, when we look at the, the semiconductor issues, uh, uh, I mean, the, the USS has this new uh, activity. I think they put something like $57 billion in, in uh, what I call home shoring, uh, all the semiconductor activities. And the EU is putting something like $43 billion to do exactly the same thing. And the reason is it's very simple in a sense that we are totally dependent on, on semiconductors for absolutely everything in the society. The Chinese are maybe 10 years behind right now. Uh, and the gap is actually widening. They are not uh, uh, cat catching up on this, but uh, uh, it, it, it's really interesting to, to see. So the, this is this is why I do what I do because uh, this is foreign policy. This is security policy. Uh, this is not just a tech issue or or, or or trade issue anymore. This is the core of foreign policy making right now. So you're saying that technology independence or technology sovereignty is the core of foreign policy. It, 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 that, that's where we are heading right now in in, in many so ways. And, and a country I, I that has a, now, by correlation, a country that has a path dependency, a country that is dependent on a supplier, an overseas supplier, or a technology partner, or technology provider, that country has given up a measure of its sovereignty. In essence, yes, yes. Wow. Because we are dependent on it. So that means then what Brett was describing a moment ago, that the world is starting to break up into different groups or what you referred to as the splinter net a moment ago. Um, I, th I see that happening not just like with super regional groups and not just technology. Um, with the advent of, uh, of um, central bank digital currencies, we're going to start to see, I think, trade groups as well, sort of regional trade blocks that use a digital currency. I think that's a very possible outcome. And certainly it's clearly something that China is already striving to do. And they've already struck deals with a number of nations to settle trade in, in digital currency. Yeah, the, 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 there is another issue also in a sense that uh, follow, for instance, what BRICS are doing uh, mm -hmm. uh, more closely. Uh, because BRICS is getting sort of uh, more to, it's, it's not only just a sort of political entity right now, it's becoming a commodity entity. Are they doing a CBDC and, really, well? and they have their own, own bank, uh, the BRICS bank, that uh, uh, finances uh, uh, projects all over the world. And so does the Chinese have an own own bank. So uh, I'm sometimes questioning what the, what is the future for sort of the traditional uh, Bretton Woods institutions, uh, the, the IMF, the World Bank, and, and the WTO.
uh, the rivalry coming from all over right now. And, and uh, uh, if, if sometimes I say that, uh, maybe a little bit uh, provocatively, that if I would be a dictator in an African country, would I actually go to the World Bank first and ask for a loan? Or would I go to the Asian Reconstru- uh, Infrastructure Reconstruction Bank and ask, ask for a loan? Or would I go to the BRICS Bank? Hmm. Uh, I'm not certain anymore. I, I the, the Maybe I would go to the other ones. Okay, so Stefan, help me understand this then. So let's let's put on our futurist cap. Let's let's think about the future here a little bit. Um, everything we're describing sounds like it could be the end of globalization because globalization requires free trade or freeish trade. Uh, it requires um, a reserve currency, which currently is the United States, the petrodollar, right? Um, and it requires. Um, the ability for goods and services to move around the world. Everything we're talking about though, in the last five minutes in this conversation seems to be leaning the other direction towards trading blocks, tightly integrated groups that work together, but don't but create barriers to others who are outside of the trading group. What's your vision of the future? Do you see globalization fragmenting into regional trading blocks? Is that really possible? That's already happening. Uh, no, no question about it. And, and uh, yeah. I wouldn't call it globalization anymore. I call it globalization. Uh, it, it's uh, we we need to have more control of the value chains uh, and and uh, uh, because we are too dependent on them as well as a society. At the same time, also with the digitalization and with the sort of technological evolvement, the way how we create value has changed. Uh, how does a company create value today? It's totally different from 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 anything else. And if you look at uh, uh, the the uh, just the comparison between intangible versus tangible uh, value at at the stock market, I think we are somewhere right now that the the the, uh, the tangible values of, of of the companies listed on the stock market uh, is less than ten percent. 90% is intangible. It's it's IP, it's data, it's it's uh, talent, uh, these kind yeah. of issues. So the way you create uh, value is has changed dramatically the last 10 years. Uh, and and uh, of course it's good for the for for the people uh, that we have free trade in 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 many ways. Uh, and and but it's going to be more more blocks like you like you said. And the US is of course tremendous in a sense that you have a really well functioning. Uh, internal market of, of uh, almost 400 million people. In the EU, we have an internal market that is not functioning with 400 million people. Mm. Uh, but at the same time, we have 1.4 billion in China. And uh, uh, then you have the, the, the different trading blocks and, and the free trade agreements that come in there. But uh, uh, yeah, this is, uh, we are living in really, really fascinating times. Okay, so once you have trading blocks, then you've got rivalry. And once you have rivalry, then you're going to have all sorts of kinds of competition that's not limited to the diplomatic or economic sphere. And the kinds of competition I'm thinking about right now is cyber warfare. Um, In my opinion, we've been living through the Cold War version two, let's say Cold War 2.0. We've been living through that for more than 10 years, uh, where the battlefield isn't, uh, isn't geographical. The battlefield is on your computer. And foreign mm-hmm. actors are trying constantly to intervene, to hack, to steal data, to get your identity, uh, to me- interfere with the business operations of companies, to interfere with the operations of governments, to find out what other foreign spy agencies or intelligence agencies are doing and so forth. We've yeah, been living through that quite a while. With uh, systems. And in your part of the world, uh, in the Nordic region, in some respects, you've been at the front line of Cold War 2.0 for many, many years, far longer than most Americans have even been aware of it. 
Uh, I know from my visits to Finland and Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania, uh, those Baltic nations, those three Baltic nations have been tormented by Russian hackers since the 1990s. And they've been attempting to build digital democracies in those regions. Um, but it's been a constant battle because they're, they're under constant assault. Uh, from um, from non-government actors, you know, from from uh, hackers who aren't necessarily affiliated with the government, they work in perhaps in concert with um, uh, intelligence agencies, national intelligence agencies, but they're freelancers. They're what uh, Vladimir Putin used to call uh, political entrepreneurs. Can you share with our audience a little bit about your experience of Cold War 2.0? I mean, we divide it into two different parts in a sense. We call it cyber operations and hybrid operations. And, and uh, cyber is, of course, something that you do uh, with a computer. You, you attack systems and, and uh, you, you, you put in a, a, you know, take out power plants and, and take hospitals ransom and, and, and all this other stuff. Uh, hybrid is something a, a little different. It's trolling, it's, it's affecting, uh, you know, mind manipulation in, in in many ways but hybrid can also be in a sense that you you what the russians did to finland some 10 years ago is that they opened all the borders for refugees from from syria and, and iraq and all this other stuff and suddenly we have 50,000 people showing up at our borders uh so so this is another issue how how, how you can do it so if you go back to the to the big picture what what i think is really at, at stake is that russia has nothing to offer uh, it, 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 if you look at what narrative does uh, Putin present to young Russians, why should they stay in Russia? Uh, it's only energy what they have to, to offer it. Uh, can you name any other export product of Russia uh, aside of energy and, and, and raw material? Uh, <laughs> yeah, not, not, not to, to that big amount. And, and uh, the, that's actually most of the vodka brands are owned, owned by the Americans. So, so Stolish Nayas and, and, and the other ones, which is a kind of fun detail. Even Finlandia is owned by Americans today. Uh, but uh, the, the, what keeps Russia, how, how can they make themselves uh, uh, useful in, in the global, global side? They can't. So the only thing what they try to do is they want to have a sort of, a, they don't want a unipolar world where the US is, is uh, above everybody else. They want to have a sort of multipolar world and, and they would have a, meaning. Uh, but what they have been doing the, the last 10-15 years is that they don't have a meaning to anyone uh, except as a raw material producer. And, and they've been really skillful in, in, in creating these issues through hybrid, through cyber uh, attacks. I mean, by financing populist movements in Europe and, and by creating uh, uh, through different kind of, of uh, uh, hybrid planning, they, they've uh, uh, pushed these green values forward in a sense that uh, uh, nuclear power is not good and, and uh, shut down Germany. And Germany has been totally, totally dependent on, on, on Russian energy. So that's what they can do, but they can't do anything else really. And we've known this, of course, for, for, for yeah. ages. And, and uh, that's why we are pretty good at it. That's why the Estonians are really good at these digital issues, these cyber issues, is that they've been, been subject to this since, yeah, since the early 90s. Now, in okay. the United States, if you were to air these comments publicly here, people would push back. Some people would laugh at you. They'd say, oh, come on, this is a crazy conspiracy that's because theory. Because of all the disinformation that, that we get in the United States, which which is called mainstream media. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sorry, I, Robert. <laughs> no, that's okay. So I think that uh, I think the United States, uh, the, our politicians, at least some of our politicians, are deeply influenced by these cyber operations or hybrid operations that you're describing. So much so that they're unconsciously parroting the, the line that is produced 
by, by well, you know, I, I, it's a closed loop system in terms of the news cycles in the states. That's the problem. You know, even you know the first thing I noticed as a as an immigrant moving to the US is you turn on you know Fox or MSNBC and you know they do the news and at the end of it say World News in Florida today, <laughs> you know? and it's like you know like um, it's very you know myopic internal internally focused the US and and you know there's a, a you know, when you do get offshore, you do see a different news cycle, significantly different news cycles offshore. So that alone, you know, tells you that something funny is going on. But um, Stefan, I'm I'm sort of really interested in where this takes us because, you know, presumably the the I mean, China is struggling now more with trying to control information. We saw that recently with the uh, the response to COVID-19, um, you know, the zero COVID uh, stuff. You know, we saw it previously a few years ago with pollution in Beijing. But the US is also going to struggle, I think, I think, with this. But playing this out over 30, 40 years, particularly with the impact of climate change and artificial intelligence, you know, um, you talked about that balance between the collective needs and the individualistic needs and that, that sort of playing off is sort of part of these two systems sort of clashing together. Where do you see, you know, climate AI, uh, you know, and, and its effect on employment and so forth, taking this sort of balance in terms of policy towards the greater good versus corporations and individual focus? It's it's difficult, of course, to say, but uh, the uh, I, I think the U.S. is still going to have uh, have the lead massively. Uh, in in uh, if you if you walk around at any campus in in California, uh, I lived next door to the UCLA campus in for for nine years. Uh, they they attract all the best talent in the whole world, uh, and and uh, when you churn all those people, all those great minds together, great things come out of it, and that's what we see coming out from Silicon Valley time and time and time again. Uh, and and uh, uh, it, it's kind of interesting, uh, you know, you can't have a recession in the U.S. at the, the moment because if you have full employment as as you have, and the attractiveness of of that market is 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 going to be huge. Uh, Europe is going to struggle in 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 many ways. Uh, because we, every time there is a possibility, some individual country wants to take advantage of, of the situation. So it, it, it doesn't really work. Uh, we really have to, to pull our, our act together and we need to be real Europeans if we want to uh, have any kind of survival on the whole thing. China is going to struggle big time. Uh, and, and the reason is demographics. Uh, they had 45 years, the one-child policy, yeah. and in the next uh, 25, 30 years, there's going to be 300 million Chinese disappearing. And, and at, at some point, the people are going to react to, to uh, the, uh, the the way they actually handle handle things and, and uh, treat individuals. So do you think uh, that... You think that's going to result in sort of a large-scale immigration policy shift there? They're going to try and attract uh, t- new talent into the country? Uh, China, well, China is in a situation that people are not moving to China. People are moving away from right. China, right. same, same as, in, as, in, as in Russia. It's a huge uh, they're, going to be, they're going to be different new hubs coming up uh, for, for sure. And, and uh, where they are, uh, it's, it's, I mean, the, the Gulf states are doing a tremendous job in ad- attracting people right now. And, and uh, it, it's really fascinating. I mean, the, just the way they think. Uh, I was at the Consensus 2022 in Austin uh, this summer, and, and uh, the, I, I met the guy from, from uh, the, the Ministry of Education of Abu Dhabi. 
and he explained to me that they are going to set up a program with uh, was it hundred students that are going to study Web 3.0, hundred students studying uh, blockchain, and and hundred students uh, studying uh, digitalization. And I asked sort of, so when are you starting? Oh, this fall. Okay, so what's the curriculum? We don't know yet. But what we do know is that all these people are going to have jobs for life because, uh, you know, we are, we are just creating it right now. Uh, so so this, this kind of approach is what, what uh, I, I find it really fascinating, the way they think forward in, in, in many ways, and they have the money to do it. I mean, they're going to run out of money when they run out of hydrocarbons, but 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 uh, that's why they have the funds and all this other stuff. This is what they do. I think that's going to be one hub for sure. Well, Dubai uh, showed... Dubai showed there's been fairly successful with that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, then of course we don't know where the climate is going. Uh, the climate change is causing causing uh, problems all over the world right now. Uh, is it going to be too hot to live in south of Europe? Uh, you know, you, you see the issues, uh, the, the rains and the storms in California right now, and and uh, issues what we have all over the world. So so we, we don't know where it, where it's heading. Same thing in in India. I mean, in in, in a sense that there are 1.5 billion people right now. What if they have famine in India? Uh, you know, there's not one million people moving. There's 150 billion people that starts to move, and there's there's no nothing in this world that can can stop yeah. that. Uh, so so in in this scenario building, we are we are playing with really big issues, uh, and and the answers are not that clear. But uh, it it seems to of me got to be in the forefront. Yeah, it seems to me, Stefan, that this is like a a almost a philosophical shift for humanity. Yes, it's technology. Yes, it's global policy and so forth. But all of these things happening at the same time and at the rate they're happening require us to think about the world in different ways. Is that too, is that too philosophical a perspective? Uh, not really. I, I call it a paradigm shift, really. And, and uh, the <laughs> funny that you say that because the, the presentation that I do many times right now starts really with these issues. Is that uh, I, I talked to a famous industrialist in Finland a couple of weeks ago, and he said that uh, he hasn't seen so many challenges and opportunities uh, in the world since the 1940s. Uh, there are so many yeah. many issues uh, on the forefront right now, uh, and and uh, so so we are willing. Well, we you know we have the tech to fix a lot of these climate issues that you're talking about, of course, but we don't have the incentives to at this point. Um, but we will if climate change is as bad as we expect it to be, particularly with food scarcity and eco refugees. Those two issues alone could push us into fairly new territory from a global policy perspective, and you know, and so forth. So. But that a big reason why that's happening, uh, Brett, is is that we've been hypnotized for the last fifty years with a belief that the only yeah. solutions can come from private industry. They have to come right. from the private sector. That government's incapable of solving problems, and the kinds of problems we're talking about can only be solved by governments cooperating with governments. If we leave or it to the private sector, corporations cooperating for the common good, which is not... That doesn't exist, Brad. Come on. There's no such thing. Corporations are there to maximize profit. That's their job. But that's the, that's the, that's the floor. Right, that's that's yeah. the flaw in capitalism now is that 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 we've run that to its logical conclusion almost. Yeah, right? and you're never going to get the people who created the problem to solve the problem, right? Sure, They're sure, not the sure. right people to solve the problem. So I don't. I think relying on the private sector, we've we've maxed that out. We've had incredible growth with incredible problems that have been generated. At this stage, it's going to require some vision and some foresight. 
from some group that doesn't have an economic stake in the outcome, a group that can rise above that. So this uh, is this is the question for Stefan to sort of yeah. really bring the show to the end then. Stefan, if you were designing a team globally to tackle these issues, you know, you talked about all these different ambassadors, you know, Denmark and Finland and and others and you know, how how would you structure a super regional think tank policy setting, you know, team that could really make a difference here? Uh, well, I, I, I would go back to the values immediately, in a sense that uh, what values are, are, are those that we want to operate on. And I, I actually put a, a high hope on, on the younger generation that comes up now, because I, I, I see that uh, they, they, they think so differently than we do. Uh, of course, one, one part is, is the, the way they consume media and the, the way they get information. Uh, that, that's really the, the, the one. And, and uh, then, then it's really to... to create opportunities that are viable both for the governments and for the private sector for the companies because if either one uh, i mean nobody can do it alone uh but to to get these things to work together and if you have the right values i think you 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 can go forward and i i i have hope i'm I'm still the optimist on, on on that side well that's a good way to finish off the show i think great we can be optimistic you know but uh, there are some challenges. But I think it's just, you know, I think the message is it, it's going to require us to work more and more together in the future. And that's the tricky, that's the difficult part. I want to thank very much. Thank you, Stefan, uh, the, the Finnish ambassador to digitalization and technology. Thank you very much for taking time today to join us on The Futurist. It's been a great pleasure catching up with you and hearing your perspectives. And it's always helpful for us in the United States to get an alternative perspective from someplace else in the world. And you've got a very strong one. So thank you for joining us. It's been a great pleasure. Stefan, is there a place where people can find out more about what you're you're doing? Uh, is there a way for them to track you on Twitter or LinkedIn or someplace else? Uh, LinkedIn, I'm active too. I'm I'm I'm, I'm sort of uh, I blocked out Twitter now for for a while, just not because of, of Musk, but because of the the. It's just too much, too much information flowing uh so so that that that's linkedin is somewhere where you can always connect with me okay and if you look for lindstrom stefan lindstrom there don't go for stefan lindstrom the cello player uh who turns up a lot in search results you're looking for stefan lindstrom who is the ambassador to digitalization and technology for the finnish foreign ministry He's um, going to go and learn cello after this just to yeah. frustrate <laughs> just to <show> up. um <laughs> I want to give a big thanks to our producer, um, Elizabeth Severance, our engineer, Kevin Hershon, and the rest of the team at Provoke Media. You folks that do a great job of making the show happen. We appreciate it. And thanks, Brett, for all your support as you travel around the world, helping us track <laughs> down other interesting people to do the show. Right, sure. Those who are listening, it would be great if you could uh, share the show with the friends. If you like the show, please give us a five-star review and let other people know that you enjoyed it. That helps other people discover the show, and it's been working really well. So we appreciate those who've done it because uh, the numbers of listeners continues to rise, and that's great fun for us. It also helps us expand our network and find other interesting futurists to bring on the show. So we would welcome more of that kind of support in the future. Um, We'll be here every week with another person who is building or inventing or designing the future of their vision, and we will see you in the future. Fabulous. Well, that's it for The Futurists this week. If you like the show, we sure hope you did. Please subscribe and share it with the people in your community. 
And don't forget to leave us a five-star review that really helps other people find the show. And you can ping us anytime on Instagram and Twitter at, at Futurist Podcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask. Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future.